This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined today by Annie Watkins. Actually, I don't know where Annie is. Where are you, Annie? I'm in Dunbeck, which is not that far from Dunedin. It's only about an hour away, but as bubbles go, I would imagine that it's quite a long way away. So how was your bubble life? It was... Absolutely wonderful. In fact, in many ways, it was better than um, non-bubble life. Um, And I don't know how unusual that is, but I think possibly I find lots of people a bit stressful and I find it really nice to not have to do anything to know what the day was going to bring. So what are you doing in Dunbeck? Well, um, I've retired, which is also absolutely great because it means I don't have to get up early in the morning. Um, And I've got a a little farmlet, a little lifestyle. Um, We're still building the house, although it has now become warm and comfortable, which it wasn't for a couple of years. And I have um, a bunch of sheep, which I look after, and just very soon... I start milking and making sheep's cheese. So are you enjoying becoming a farmer and not a teacher and various other things? <laughs> teacher and a scientist. Well, I still get to be a scientist um, making cheese, um, so that's good. I don't think you can teach sheep very much. Um, you can try. Yeah, no, I, am. <laughs> I can't even teach the dogs around the sheep up. I'm pretty hopeless at that. But, um, yes, I'm enjoying it hugely, actually. I'm, I'm wondering why I didn't you know, do this forever. How long have you been on the farm? Um, well, I sort of got here gradually because my partner came first um, when the house really wasn't a house. Um, and I lived in a bus in town and came out at the weekends. That was while I was still working. So... I'm just trying to remember how long ago that was. I don't know, maybe about four years, five years? And is four this, years, three years. <laughs> is this building a house thing, some glutton for punishment? Because you've done that before, haven't you? Yeah, we built a, a straw bale house, um, but we had four kids then, so we built an absolutely enormous straw bale house. Um no, not really a glutton for punishment thing. It's just that the house that was on here wasn't... Um, mm. <laughs> we even we were even sold it as something where they said, um, you know, we're not selling you a house, we're selling you a piece of land. That's how bad it was. So is it a grand plan? It's very simple, um, very small. It's not anything special in terms of a straw bale, um, but the wall spaces are nice and thick and they're filled with wool because that's a very suitable thing for New Zealand. And it's built with, well, it's rebuilt with wood off the uh, off the site because we have lots of pine trees in the mill. So, that's yeah, a... I guess it is a grand plan, yeah. Has that always been a dream? Um... No, I think the straw bale house was the always a dream, and I think this was more sort of downsizing so that we could get rid of a mortgage because, um, you know, I wasn't really old enough to retire. Um, so we had to do a bit of rethinking. Um, we watched a lot of other people sort of say, oh, I can't afford to retire, I've still got a mortgage. 
And, you know, although I sympathize, I don't really feel that I would do that. I would just go, well, now I'll live somewhere smaller, simpler, further out. So living on a farm and, and building a house on, on a farm sounds like you're already doing a degree of self-isolating. So did, did much change yeah. for you in that regard? No. No, it really didn't. Um, I guess we were already self-isolated in that sense, totally. And of course, we had plenty of space to get out and about, and we could still, you know, shout at the neighbours across the paddocks, so that was okay. Um, I am much more gregarious than my partner and used to come into town um, for a couple of days a week and obviously had to stop doing that. Um, and I miss dancing which was my main form of exercise but you know I mean I think the sort of godsend in all this was the fact that we're also interconnected on the internet and so I didn't really fail to see people um, I just failed to be with them that's all let's take the first of your music choices you win the prize for the best titled song not just the <laughs> Not just the song itself, but the band, the Bonzo Dog Doodah, I'm the Urban Spaceman. Why this one? Um, ooh, well, I used to go to London um, and stay with my cousins, and they introduced me to the Bonzo Dog Doodah band. Um, I, I was the, the youngest in my generation, and everybody called me Spud and... Um, treated me like a country hick, which I wasn't at the time, but I guess I am now. Um, and I just fell in love with the Bonzos because it's so odd and peculiar. Um, why that particular one is, um, I guess, the Neil Inners being the songwriter. I think he's a great songwriter. And also, at the time, when I was a teenager, I thought he was astonishingly good-looking, and that makes a huge difference, you know, to loving songs. I'm the urban spaceman, baby, I've got speed I've got everything I need about an age of being connected one of the things that it's interestingly done is the the fact that we can't get together as communities has in some ways brought us closer together in communities yeah 
I guess it has. Um, I guess we just organised a little bit more in order to achieve that. But I don't know. I mean, I think since we've had the internet, we've been able to form interest groups that wouldn't normally be together. Yes. Because they're not together in space. Yes, even if some of them are a bit weird. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, it's always been my sort of lifelong problem finding people who are weird enough for me, either <laughs> weird enough for me to find them entertaining or weird enough that they can actually cope with how weird I am. And you've been active during the, the, the pandemic in doing what can be described as science communication, science education, because you are a geneticist with a PhD yes. and a teacher. Yes. Does that never go away? I think it might do for some people, but for me, no. I think, um, I mean, I fought hard against being a teacher. First I said, you know, I'd be no good at it. And then when I found I was good at it, I went, well, that doesn't mean I want to do it. But somehow the things that you're good at reward you. And so I, I get told off. I get told off from my partner for being didactic in shops and things. Yeah, no, it never goes away for me. And is there lots of opportunity for doing that at the moment? There is more opportunity than I can cope with. I'm actually getting a little sort of battle fatigue, I think. Um, I think that people have realised that the potential for disinformation via the internet is huge. And then they've kind of recruited this huge army of people who are vulnerable. And I'm not sure that I ever get through to those who choose to believe X, but quite often they carry a lot of people with them. And I do get people saying, oh, I'm glad you said that or posted that or whatever. I was wondering. And I think that's where where it has value. And, and some of the people seem, it's quite surprising the attitude that some people are taking. And for some people, it's not. For some people, we you know are belligerent and aren't going to believe anything. But there does seem to be a a strange distrust of science. Yeah, and also a strange trust in conspiracy theories. And a lot of people have been sort of wondering why that is. And I guess the big thing that we didn't have so much before was fear. I think that the pandemic has frightened people, and they feel... Like, they don't know which way is up, they don't know what to do, they're so helpless. That, I don't know, people have suggested that believing that they know something that somebody else doesn't somehow gives them control that they've lost. I don't know. I've no idea because it's never occurred to me to think like that. Well, that's, I was about to ask you about the, the, the role of science and the role of uncertainty in science. People are demanding certainty. Yes. But anyone that's got any science training knows that science doesn't give you certainty. That's right. And that's one of the big things that I get um, when I'm talking about probability um, is, you know, I'm sort of saying, look, I don't know whether A or B, but the probability against B is actually quite small and the probability against A is quite high and here's why. And it's kind of difficult often to give them the here's why because if you go back to the sort of scientific papers that you got it from, they're not going to read them. And if they do read them, they're going to find them very, very difficult. So a lot of this is third or fourth hand by the time it gets to people. Um, and I've lost completely lost the thread of what I was saying there. Remind me where I started. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all right. You, you were having a discussion with someone the other day who, uh, after you had done an, a, quite a lot of analysis and, and looked at... Um, looked at quite a lot of sort of scientific papers and had done a really good job of communicating them, had had put up something which was blatant conspiracy theory stuff, and their response was, have you read the article? Ah, yes. Um, it's true. I, I get sent a lot of conspiracy stuff it, um, because I engage in this. And one of the things that I don't do is I don't look at YouTube videos. Basically, because they are 
even at best, they will only be third or fourth hand information. Um, and at worst, anybody can put up a quite slick looking YouTube video. So I'm only prepared to read stuff. And I think that, um, you know, have you looked at this is probably a valid criticism of me because what I'm afraid of is so many people disappear down rabbit holes by, again, during the pandemic, having less to do and maybe just sitting on their computer watching it and reading anything and everything. Um, and I think that there is a huge danger there. So I have actually restricted myself. And that does make for a difficult answer if I won't read the article. I mean, that particular one, I had read the article because it was print. So so given that everybody doesn't have the luxury of, of postgraduate study in, in science, yes. is there some simple things that people can do to... I'm not sure if the word is protect themselves, but inform themselves? Um, well, I think that everybody has the sort of standard system where they pick somebody that they trust and listen to them. Um, you know, if that happens to be um, Gwyneth Paltrow, then probably you're not going to get much science. Um, and if it happens to be somebody who is a, a good science communicator um, and Susie Wilde is, you know, my sort of go-to pick here, um, then you're going to get good science and hopefully you're going to get it in a way that you can understand. Um, but one of the things that I quite often do is pick on something, um, especially if I'm, you know, looking at a conspiracy theory, pick on something that they can understand and say, okay, you know, think this through and if you think that, no, this is basically ridiculous, then what about the rest of the article? Do you really feel you can trust the rest of it if you've used your own knowledge to debunk something that they've said? What makes a good science communicator? Ah, what makes a good science communicator? Um, making it relate to everyday stuff that people are used to. Um, my sort of go-to story for this was when I was teaching primary school teachers um, and we were playing with toys and it took me actually half the morning to get adults to just play with the toys. Um, and there was a woman who was playing with a toy um, child buggy, you know, and I was sort of looking at the front wheels and saying, well, if you're going around a circle, um, one set of wheels is going to have to go much faster than the other. And by the time we'd finished and I'd explained differential to her, she said, is that what my partner means when he talks about the diff in the car? And I said, exactly. And she said, oh, oh, now I feel so much better. I know what he's talking about. <laughs> it just made me feel absolutely great because, you know, I felt that she was now empowered where she was disempowered before. Um, and, and it all just started by looking at buggies and watching what the wheels do. I wonder if that's part of the problem that we're, we're, we're facing. Or, or maybe the, 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 the opportunity that we have is that the response to the pandemic, this, this sort of team of five million, the, the, the kindness, is actually an empowering approach. I certainly think that the request for kindness has, um, that's what's behind the request for kindness, that um, working together and kindness is empowering and fighting with each other is disempowering. And of course, we all know that this is our advantage in New Zealand because we've got a, a leader who knows this and a leader who is really working to maintain this, whereas other countries maybe have very divisive politics. Um, and that leadership, I think, makes a huge difference. And it's made a difference to me as well, because um, I can get a little unkind when people are being stupid, not sort of directly unkind, but maybe in the sort of sarcastic sense. Um, and I have realized, I mean, I guess I already knew it, that it's not helpful. It just puts people off. They just go, right, I'm not talking to you if you're going to be sarcastic with me. I mean, it's all very fine because other people think it's funny and you get a reward for it, but it doesn't help you with the person that you're actually trying to communicate with. And I've really had to 
put a curb on doing that. Um, it's just so tempting. It's just so tempting. To, I think. To do it. I think quite a lot of the 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 the, the cynicism is that that we're not seeing that much of here. But we've talked to quite a few people from Australia and the States recently, and there's a it's a much stronger feeling of um, you, you have to question what the government is doing, that, that this is not necessarily a conspiracy, even without going that far, but, you know, the, the government is using this to its advantage to control you. I mean, not going anywhere near the... the, the the Bill Gates doing the microchip implants, but the, <laughs> but the, it's, it's. I think it's a stronger feeling elsewhere where they haven't got that that countering message, that empowering message of kindness. Yes, I think that's very very true, and I mean I would wholly sympathise with people who think that um, somebody is using the situation. Um, to profit from it or benefit from it, whether it's financially or politically. Um, I think that is very, very true of um, a lot of places. And I mean, obviously, you know, our government here is being accused of that because it's part of, you know, what the opposition do is to keep a check on what's going on. But I have never in my entire life seen a government more transparent than the one we've got. I mean, people sort of say, oh, they're not telling us stuff. I think this is simply because the information overload would be absolutely enormous if we were told anymore. But it's all there. It's all there on the internet to find. And I mean, it's one of my sort of pieces of enormous armory is the information that is out there in the public for New Zealand. I mean, other countries as well. I've used information from other countries because I think most of the world has realized that sharing information at least is really vital but yeah um politics is a mess and there's a lot of yeah. people out well, back, there back to that uncertainty thing the recognition that that information doesn't exist we, yes. we cannot say on what date this will happen because we don't yes. know nobody knows no. there's some models that think we might be able to do this and if everybody behaves then we might be able to do this and but we don't really know if the if a, the virus is going to sneak out in some way we didn't expect. So we can't tell you on such and such a date this is going to happen. We saw so much of that, particularly sort of in the when, as we went down through the levels, people demanding yeah. this and saying we can't, absolutely can't yo-yo. It, it, it just seems, yeah. well, what's the alternative? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the, that whole uncertainty issue is something I think that sort of Human beings are not very well equipped to cope with uncertainty because we have to make decisions and then we have to stick by them. Um, and one of the more peculiar things about me when people sort of talk to me is I don't actually believe anything. It's all a matter for me of levels of probability and models. And I don't think most people work like that. I mean, of course, then you have to do something. So you have to go, okay. Um, you know, what's my best chance and go with that. But you, you're still entertaining the fact that you could be wrong. And I don't know, I think people find that very, very difficult, especially where risk is concerned. Um, things that you're frightened of. My mother used to be really frightened of um, flying in airplanes. And I tried, you know, being a silly scientist, tried to explain to her the probability of dying in a an aeroplane compared to going in a car, which she was perfectly happy to do, and it didn't make any difference to her fear at all, because that wasn't what the problem was. You know, she did, doesn't work in statistics. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou. I hope you're all having the best day of your superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope that wherever you are, whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, fulfilling and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here, making things better. Thank you. 
So of course, I've had a very interesting day and I've been very excited to talk to you about it. And as we know, we are negotiating this very fascinating sensory experience at the moment as part of consensus reality as a species of human animal. And everything that we do, everything share, adds to this ongoing glorious process of co-evolution. And I know that we are all contributing such unique and valuable gifts at all times. And I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Thank you, Fat. So it's been a very interesting day because there's been some naughty behaviour going on, some challenging behaviour that I've been encountering and I've had to deal with. And of course, we all come across these behaviours in our lives at different times. And on a collective scale, we are having to deal with this. And what can we do? It's been very interesting for me because, as we know, more and more, I've just been appreciating everything in our lives, from each breath to all interactions, everything we do as part of an ongoing gift exchange program. And this has been really, really helping me. So I have been able to extend this reframing even to challenging and naughty behaviours, which I was having to deal with today. And it really, really helped. So by taking a wee step back and just looking at this process as a gift exchange, I was able to remain gracious and non-reactive. And by doing that, it actually really helped me to see that I had a lot of skills that perhaps I wasn't initially aware of that enabled me to deal with the situation well. And actually, the other person who I was interacting with in this unusual gift exchange program, by my remaining non-reactive and gracious, their behaviour shifted significantly and they were able to more positively contribute their gifts as part of the gift exchange process. So I really hope that for all of you, you can find opportunities to reframe in terms of a gift exchange. And one of the reasons I think this is so beneficial and it has been so helpful for me is that because on a very basic physiological level, our amazing, miraculous, beautiful, beautiful human brain loves gift giving and gift exchange programs. So when we are engaged with a process of giving, and that can be in in so many, so, so many different myriad ways as we know, Our brain just loves it and our brain rewards us. Our brain gives us happy chemicals. So we get this big burst of oxytocin, which is just wonderful for us. This is the love hormone. And this is all about feeling really relaxed and at ease. Now, breathing slows and deepens and all our senses are awakened and we just feel so happy and elated. And of course, all those bonds are able to be strengthened and not only are we rewarded with the gift of all of this oxytocin, but we're also rewarded with a lowering of our cortisol levels. So our cortisol levels drop right down. We feel very at ease. And I love introducing this, reframing this, so that I can feel this as much as I possibly can. And of course, the other side of this is that when we are able to relax and feel happy and feel grateful for what is occurring around us often unexpectedly positive things will occur because we're able to problem solve creatively and acknowledge new skills and new ways of making things even better that we might not have consciously been aware were there within us that certainly happened for me today so I really hope that for all of you, you're having the opportunity to reframe your daily experience in terms of a gift exchange program. And I really hope that can be beneficial to you. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. We've seen lots of societal changes over the last few months. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Uh, I tell you what, my biggest hope was that we were going to have um, UBI um, developing during the lockdown. Um, I I don't know, I guess I probably hope for bigger societal changes than are ever going to happen. I've seen a lot in my life, but they've all been very, very, very slow. Um, and I'd like to move away from 
the sort of heavily capitalistic model of life that we've got. I'm a great believer that if we looked after everybody, which you know is what socialism is all about, by giving them um, an income, people would still be perfectly happy to go to work because I think people actually enjoy working and enjoy helping. Um, so that was the one I was hoping for and I sort of felt like it was a now or never moment when we were in lockdown that we had to um, help those who were out of work um, and that maybe that was the time to bring it in and it didn't happen. We certainly showed that change is possible. It's going to be difficult for yeah. any politician to not change things or to say that stuff's too hard. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Again, I think we're just enormously lucky. I mean, the election could just as easily have gone the other way. Um, and I, to be honest, I have no faith in how this would have worked out um, had we not had two things, one, a socialist government, and two, actually Jacinda Ardern herself as a leader. I think that, I mean, I'm not into cult of personality, but I think that what she's been able to do as a leader is down a lot to her personality. Um, I mean, obviously she's got this enormous support to get there and a lot of people no doubt telling her how to do things and so on and so forth. But I just think that there's an awful lot of people out there who would not have been able to call people together in that way. What lessons do you think we can take from this experience for the perhaps bigger questions, the intergenerational questions, climate change, biodiversity collapse, social injustice, I could go on. <laughs> we could take lots and lots of lessons from it. Um, I mean, the biggest lesson surely for New Zealand is that if we really want to do something and we all work together to achieve it, we can. But of course, you have to have buy-in from everybody, and not dying of a pandemic is something I think that leads to reasonably high buy-in, provided you know that people trust that this is the right answer. Um, but uh, I don't know. Even now, with global warming, I'm not sure that we have a big enough buy-in, um, especially because we have all the sort of people who are going to benefit financially from not doing anything um, ranged against it. I mean, this was one of the things that I meant when I said that um, I've seen change over my life, but it's been very slow. When I went to university, I mean, it wasn't actually global warming then, but I mean, it was the beginnings of the whole problem. Um, you know, the problem of having the scientific agency to do what we have done to our planet and having you know the the all the other agency as well to to achieve what, we, what we've done hmm. um and that was the point at which i started being i guess a campaigner which i've never really been much of about anything in my life but about that and the one thing that I sort of have noticed is that when I was at university and talking to people, I was just talking into a vacuum. Nobody was listening except, you know, a few fellow scientists. And now it is a household word. It is an everyday thing. People do actually know what it means, um, even if they're not prepared to do anything about it. But no, that was 40 years ago that I started doing that and this is how far we've come. So on the one hand it's very positive and on the other hand it's kind of far too slow. And the response to that has been, as you say, slow and we've, we've been trying incrementally to do it incrementally and we've been trying to do it with tweaking and greening existing business models yet the pandemic... Yeah. We were able to, it's a, we took it as a switch. Yeah. On Thursday, this is happening. Yes. Can we, yeah. can we somehow elevate those other global problems to something that's going to happen on Wednesday? <sighs> I wish. Um, I'm not all that hopeful given um, how deeply grooved we are into this pattern of being. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, the, the pandemic was a direct threat, and I don't think people. I mean, I don't know. People took the build-up of the pandemic seriously, but they don't see, seem to take the build-up of um, global warming seriously. I mean, I'm still driving a car, <laughs> so you know, who am I to talk? When I was walking out of the pool this morning, we got hit by a, a nice warm wind and person I was walking with said, well, if this is global warming, bring it on. Well, yeah, but the trouble is that, that that's always, you know, it's like a throwaway line, isn't it? But global warming isn't just that we all get a little bit warmer where it's cold, but we, we get extreme events. We get, um, I mean, I think um, the USA has been hit by an awful lot of sort of horrendous wind events. And when I lived in Fiji um, and we were looking at the effect on um, the Pacific, we were looking at te ocean temperatures because the temperature of the ocean um, is actually what sort of triggers these things. And if you go up one degree, um, then suddenly an enormous amount more ocean becomes capable of triggering these wind events. And so one of our biggest predictions was that there was going to be more and more of these catastrophic events. And in the Pacific, um, with low islands, they are even more catastrophic. Yeah. Maybe, it, maybe it'll start to hit home with the, you know, the, the temperature issues that California and the, the, the west coast of the U.S. is happening, having. They had a, a week of more than 45 degrees or something ridiculous like that. And that's just nuts. It is, but I was in the UK recently and it was really, really hot and everybody was just going, oh, it's really, really hot and waiting for it to stop as opposed to realising that uh, we're going to get more and more of these more extreme events. Let's take Christy Moore, Ride On. Why this one? Yeah, that was the one that um, took me longest to get to because um, I'd given you two and I was sort of floundering around for a third. I'm one of these peculiar people that I really, really like music, but I don't actually listen to it much. And I don't, um, I don't have a, a sort of cult of music and I don't have a favorite song. Um, and actually, I'd sort of gone on the internet and I was looking at my conversations with people and I struck a conversation with my sister. Um, who actually sings this song, and it reminded me of it. Um, and it's one of those songs that's slightly unusual. You know, you don't actually know what the lyrics mean immediately, and so you just end up listening to the music and listening to the whole effect. And it's one that sort of gives me chills up and down my spine, as people say, um, even if I haven't a clue what it means. <laughs> <laughs> Sixteen, one or two With eyes wild and green You ride the horse so well Hands light to the touch I could never go But you no matter how I wanted to Ride on I could never go with you no matter how I wanted to Ride on See you I could never go with you no matter how I wanted to Without a 
drifts behind Run your claw along my gut One last time I turn to face an empty space Where you used to lie And look for the spark that lights the night Through a teardrop in my eye Ride on See you I could never go with you No matter how I wanted to Ride on I could never go with you no matter how I wanted you questions to end the show with what is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years um in the last couple of years i think it's probably been um the coming together of my sort of sheep breeding program um i knew that i was going to have to breed up the sort of sheep that i wanted before i really started milking and getting into cheese making um and the exciting thing about um, milking sheep is that the ones that produce the most milk are the ones that are most fragile and delicate. So I've been doing a lot of crossbreeding to try and get a sheep that both produces enough milk and doesn't keel over and die. Um, and I sort of I felt like I'd really got there I, with producing enough cheese for my whole family for a whole year. Um, and the latest thing is that I've got. Um, into colour genetics because living out at Dunback where it's kind of sunny and dry the poor little milking sheep who are very very pink um, get sunburned and they get really badly sunburned ears and they're not sensible enough if you provide them with shade to go in it during the worst of the sun so I actually have to put sun cream on their ears which seems a little ridiculous um, so I've got a black ram and most um, in most sheep, black is a recessive, so it disappears fairly quickly if you cross it into white sheep. But I've now got a caracal sheep, which are the ones that they used to use for making astrakhan hats, because they have um, very curly, very glossy um, wool or hair. Um, and I'm hoping, because these have a dominant black gene, that I can get some coloured sheep that won't get sunburned. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you're on our team. What is the superpower that's got you into our mansion? Ooh, science. That's my superpower. <laughs> Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Uh, a fairly passive activist, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not a sort of take-to-the-streets demonstrating activist. I'm much more of, as I said before, a keyboard warrior. Um, I'm out there to teach. I'm out there to convince. I'm out there to persuade. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, pretty much nothing. Um, <laughs> I'm in bed now. 
<laughs> no, what's going to get me out of bed um, when we finish is to go and see if I've got any lens thorns. Um, and yeah, that is what gets me out of bed, looking after animals. And I guess it's it's kind of deliberate because I know that I'm lazy. But of course, animals that are in captivity need you. Um, you have a debt to them if you're going to keep them, um, to look after them. So um, rain or shine, um, whatever the weather, whatever I feel like, I have to get out there and tend to the animals. That's what gets me up because I'm lazy. So what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Ooh, what challenge? I, ha I have so many things that I do. In fact, the, the biggest problem for me is that I take on far too much stuff and don't have time to, to do them all. Um, I think I've probably cracked the cheese making challenge, so it's not that. I'm not sure I know what it is. Um, I've learned a lot of woodwork. Um, so maybe that will start blossoming. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? <sighs> Be kind. Stay part of the team. Um, work together. Think. Think about stuff. Just think. Don't listen to other people. Well, do listen to other people, but think about what they say and whether it makes sense to you. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that we suffer from at the moment is disinformation. Somebody with a reason to make you believe something different, and particularly a reason to make you vote in a particular way. And I don't care how people vote. What I care passionately about, really passionately about, is that people got the chance to participate in democracy by voting for what they really wanted, not what somebody else persuaded them they wanted. That sounds like good advice. Let's go out to Marcus Turner. We have the session. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Marcus Turner is wonderful. He said once, um, I'm so worried about the quality of my words, although he has no reason to, that uh, I try and wow people with quantity. Um, and this is a sort of a hallmark of what he does. I don't know how he remembered all those words, but he's absolutely fantastic. And of course, I love words. Words are my life. Um, and so I love songs where they cram in a million words and they all rhyme and fit together beautifully. And sometimes sets up a rhyme and then doesn't deliver on it, and that's even better. It is. It is, yes. <laughs> Corner up the back of an alley There's a pokey little pub that's called the raking of the moon I can't for the life of me remember its location But be certain not to miss it if you're looking for a tune I was there a night myself, on a Monday or a Thursday With a head full of directions from a man I didn't know Who had said I might be fortunate enough to find a session So I bundled up me fiddle and I thought I'd have a go And I was there, sitting in the middle of the patio And the bow running the bones with me fiddle And we played just like it was going out of fashion As we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion The session to believe the title do the title and that there was the chorus. After pounding on the pavement for an hour and a quarter, I eventually found the place that I was looking for. I could tell it was the session by the way the place was rocking. The music you could hear at least a dozen blocks or more. Nobody objected when I asked if I could enter, though a fella knocked my hat off that stood upon his toe. There's saw a little gap just big enough to squeeze a bum in, so I had me own upon it. I rosined up me bow, and I was there, sitting in the middle of the patio in the barn. The bones of me fiddle, and we played just like it was going out of fashion as we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion at the session to the Thank you, that was great. There were singers and musicians from the nether end of everywhere With harps and hurdy-gurdies and a clatter of castanets An ethnomusicologist from London in the corner Beating with them with the squeaking of his portable cassettes 
A choir of eighty a cappella in the ladies' lavatory. A press gang of accordions squeezed around the door. They even had a section for the barons in the basement. You could tell when they were bashing the rumble through the floor. And I was there, sitting in the middle of the patio with the baron. The bones of me fiddle, and we played just like it was going out of fashion as we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion. The session of the diddle 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 diddle. I like the last one. What a fabulous festivity, a feast of famous faces Anybody who was anybody, show the body there The Celtic literati, the Isle of Man to Brittany Were lifting up their drinking arms and letting down their Be whiskered balladeers and real recording superstars A pack of pickled pipers kept the dancers on their toes And also one who looked a lot to me like Donald Lunny Another face I recognised but couldn't pick the nose and I was there, sitting in the middle of the banjo And the bow running the bones with me fiddle And we played just like Going out of fashion as we gave the tunes a thrashing with the passion. The session to the vehicle to the vehicle, dangle doodle dangle So with spirits elevated, we ourselves inebriated as we fiddled and we tippled and we danced a night away till I finally departed with the publican's persuasion. The yawning of the dawning of the morning of the day, the throbbing in me throat, and the numbness in me noddle from the bouncing of the bubbles on the bottom of me brain. I've often felt a graving for a spot of Celtic graving, but I fancy I've forgotten how to find the place again. And I was there, sitting in the middle of the banjo and the bow run and the bones when me fiddled and we played just like going out of fashion as we gave the tune to thrash and with the passion to three. I was there, sitting in the middle of the the banjo and the bones of me fiddled and we played just like it was going out of fashion as we gave the tune to thrashing with the passion the session to the deeple to the deeple title deeple title da You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles Positive Conversations with people in their bubbles their safe spaces around the world Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and was joined today by Annie Watkins in Dunback. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.